Okay. Well, I'm Chris May, and um, I grew up as the younger brother of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, that's how I sign. Whenever I sign, um, you know, I always have Rudolph books for people, and if they ask for one, that's how I always sign it. Um, you know, Merry Christmas, love from one of Rudolph's favorite sisters. <laughs> This is Irregular People. On today's episode, I want to take a break from the heavy material of 2020. It's been a hard year for most of us in one way or another, and I thought perhaps a little Christmas special might be nice. So today I'm joined by two younger siblings of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Martha May and Chris May are both the children of Robert L. May, the man who wrote the original story of Rudolph. I figured I was going to tell you the origin story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with Martha and Chris filling in the gaps with personal memories and thoughts. But fortunately, Chris took the time to prepare something and read it to me over the phone. It's beautifully written, concise, and complete, and much better than anything I might have put together. So I'm going to let Chris tell you about Robert L. May and the creation of Rudolph. Most of us grow up accepting Rudolph as a part of some ancient Christmas folklore, maybe, perhaps passed down for hundreds of years. But that's just simply not the case. So here's a little audio sketch, a short little trip into the life and mind of Robert L. May, the man who created Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and some gifts from the hearts and memories of two of his children, Martha and Chris. Okay, well... I'm Chris May, and um, I grew up as the younger brother of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a character that uh, my dad, Robert L. May, created in 1939 in his children's book by that title. And when I popped into the world in 1943, Rudolph was already four years old. As a kid, one of my fondest memories of Rudolph and I should say of my dad was uh, putting up a six foot tall plaster statue of Rudolph in the front yard of our house in Evanston every Christmas. And dad quite rightly often referred to the place as quote, the house that Rudolph built end quote. Um, As you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the story of a fellow who was rejected by his peers because he looked different from them and didn't quite fit in. One day, he's blessed when Santa Claus realizes that Rudolph's apparent infirmity would be invaluable in helping to guide his sleigh on even the foggiest of nights. So the odd little guy whose difference made him an outcast suddenly became a hero. The Rudolph character was in some ways modeled uh, on my dad's own life. Uh, He grew up in New York as a smart little ethnic Jew who didn't quite fit in. Part of the problem was that he was, at least early on, quite small. And uh, Dad would regularly enter into a a journal that he kept, his weight. Uh, And he would do this sometimes uh, once a week. uh, And it was evidently a very, very important thing for him. Um, So February 8th, 1922, was a big day in my dad's life. On that date, uh, this 16-year-old high school senior finally weighed in at 100 pounds. Um, so he went on from, from high school and went to Dartmouth College, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1926. And after that, he went out into the real world, where he worked as a copywriter and copy editor of advertising 
for a catalog in department stores. And his first job right out of college was with Macy's in New York City. But uh, with the great crash in 1929, he had to start moving around the country quite a bit. And he worked in a number of different cities, uh, Atlanta and Nebraska, Chicago, and so on. Uh, in 1936, uh, he and his wife, Evelyn, uh, whom he'd married two years out of college, and their two-year-old daughter, Barbara, finally moved to Chicago uh, and settled down, so to speak, uh, where Dad took on an advertising job at Montgomery Ward. Uh, Montgomery Ward's not in business anymore, but they were a big rival, co-equal, really, with Sears. as one of the nation's uh, largest catalog stores. And he would work at Ward's for the next 24 years and finally retired in 1970, six years before he died. And if Dad's life in some ways resembled Rudolph's in terms of his growing up as a sort of underdog, uh, I guess the question is when and how did he finally get discovered by Santa and suddenly become a much more accepted hero? And the answer to that is probably uh, Christmas of 1939. Uh, until that time, uh, Montgomery Ward, where he had been working, uh, had been giving away children's coloring books at its catalog stores every holiday season. But the trouble with the coloring books was that Montgomery Ward had to buy them and pay for them. Uh, so in early 1939, they asked Dad, who was known to be kind of a creative wordsmith, that's what they hired him for, I guess, they asked him if he could come up with a children's book that they could give away instead so that Wards wouldn't have to pay somebody else for their books. So Dad took to the idea, uh, and he finished writing Rudolph's story by the end of August uh, uh, that year. And he got a lot of help uh, from his daughter, uh, Barbara, uh, who was now the ripe age of four. And he would read her passages and then gauge her reaction to different word selections. Uh, and she actually helped him uh, on that, even making some very specific word uh, choices for him. But it was a very hard time for both of them because uh, his wife and Barbara's mother, Evelyn, had been suffering from cancer for several years, and she died uh, in late July 1939, about a month before uh, Dad finished uh, writing the Rudolph story. Montgomery Ward uh, published Rudolph as a softcover booklet that Christmas, 1939. And the title page, not the cover, but the title page uh, read, quote, written for Montgomery Ward by Robert L. May, end quote. And Ward's gave away 2.4 million copies of the book that year. Uh, but with the outbreak of World War II and the shortage of paper that uh, came with that, Ward's didn't again give away the Rudolph book until Christmas of 1946, uh, seven years later, when another 3.6 million copies were distributed. Montgomery Ward, uh, rather than my dad, owned the copyright to the 1939 and 1946 editions since it was literally a work made for hire. Uh, so my dad didn't make any money from Rudolph during those years. Uh, I didn't get any pay bonuses or anything awards. But that didn't really matter to him. Uh, and this gets to the heart of what I really want to say about my dad, something that I uh, deeply admire him for. His own childhood experiences, coupled with the then state of his life, made it very easy for him to identify with the character he was bringing into the world. 
Many years later, he said that through Rudolph, he hoped to convey a message of hope, to tell the story of an underdog who was yet triumphant in the end, end quote. And he hoped that children who heard or read the story of Rudolph would, in his words, be inspired by the little deer who started out life as a loser, just as I did. If there's a message in Rudolph, he said, it's that tolerance and perseverance can overcome adversity. It is a story of acceptance, end quote. So Rudolph's sudden fame became the story of my dad's own final acceptance. Whatever doubts he may have had about himself were finally erased. In this way, what he got out of Rudolph was far more valuable than money. Indeed, it was something that money could never buy. Yet money did flow into the scene or onto the scene, um, lots of it. In 1947, um, a year after the second distribution of the Rudolph booklet, um, Montgomery Ward, in an incredible act of generosity, uh, gave the Rudolph copyright to my dad, the company having decided that its two huge distributions were enough. So that led uh, my dad to find a commercial publisher for the Rudolph story, which now came out as a hardcover book that sold for all of 50 cents. And when dad's brother-in-law, uh, Johnny Marks, then put the story to music in 1949 with the Rudolph song, things suddenly took off. In the years uh, since Rudolph had made his first appearance in 1939, um, my dad had remarried. Uh, he uh, and his uh, new wife, Virginia, had three more kids, uh, one of whom was me. Um, because of the new influx of money in 1950, uh, the family was finally able to move from our crowded Evanston apartment, where there were six of us living, to a new house, the one with the big Rudolphs that got erected on the front lawn every Christmas. For a few years, Dad earned a great deal of money from Rudolph. But Uncle Sam took nearly all of it, uh, because in those days, you may not have realized it, and I didn't either, the top federal income tax rate for individuals was 92%. I kid you not, 92%. The top rate today is only 37%. So what that meant was that dad wasn't able to save very much of the money that came in during those years. And they also didn't have what they had for a while, the five-year income averaging where you could spread your earnings over five years. And uh, if there was a peak year, it didn't hurt you so badly. But Nevertheless, he was able to take my mom on a trip to Europe. Uh, before that, she'd never been out of the Midwest. Um, he also bought some U.S. savings bonds to help with the kids' educations. And this is the questionable thing. He bought himself a pink and black. He called it coral and black, but it was a pink and black 1956 Lincoln Continental automobile. Uh, and most importantly, I guess, he was able to quit his job with Montgomery Ward, uh, but in 1958, most than seven years after he quit at Ward's, he was back working for the company, uh, and he ended up staying with them for another 12 years. Uh, when he finally retired in 1970, he was earning less than the $13,000 a year I was making as a fresh out of law school poverty lawyer uh, in San Francisco. But again, for Dad, it was never about the money. What mattered to uh, him was that every December he could dress up, quite literally, 
and step out into the world again as the proud father of Rudolph. And Rudolph's success, though, never turned his head. Uh, he was and remained a humble man to the very end. I think he truly saw Rudolph as a blessing rather than as something he could take full credit for. Uh, yeah, it was he uh, who put the pen to paper and he who wrote the story. But he had absolutely no control over the almost magical way in which the world uh, would uh, embrace his creation. So that was probably one reason Dad was never very keen about enforcing the Rudolph copyright and the trademark against every possible infringement. But by the time he'd reached the end of his life, Rudolph had already become so much a part of the American culture that I'm not sure Dad really felt that he should continue to claim ownership of the character. If he'd had his druthers, and this is just speculation on my part, but I think that if he'd had his druthers, he might one day have decided uh, that Rudolph should become part of the so-called public domain, uh, a step that he never took. Uh, instead, for better or for worse, the Rudolph character is still fully protected by copyright and trademark law, something for which all six of his children remain very grateful to this day. For the, for the 11 months of the year, you know, we were just regular people. And, and then... December came and it was like magic. It was like we were celebrities. We were, we all felt special. He didn't do anything to make us feel special, but we felt surrounded with special just because of Rudolph. There was this, this, this aura around the house and. Well, it was, it was very special uh, in part because we had a very, very strict household uh, growing up um, uh, my, my dad, who had suffered a lot uh, during the country's depression years, uh, was, he didn't really expect or count on the kids necessarily having any smoother uh, a life, uh, particularly economically, than he had in his tough years. And I didn't say it in the uh, earlier, but uh, by the time Rudolph came along, you know, there were six of us crowded into this relatively small apartment. Uh, as I understand it, he and my mom had pawned uh, a lot of the stuff that they'd gotten for their wedding. Um, he had grown up in a pretty wealthy family in New York. Uh, his parents, I understand, had a lot of money. They lost had lost a lot of the money very early on, 20, 1929, early 30s. So he was somebody who didn't count on um, good fortune. Um, he firmly believed the old notion about, you know, success is kind of a combination of the preparedness and, and luck. And uh, so for that reason, as I said earlier, he didn't take uh, this huge amount of credit for Rudolph. It was a blessing as well. So it was a strict, my point is, it was a strict household, and he wanted all of us to be ready to go out there in the world and and, and make it on our make it on our own. And we had lots of chores and had to work during the summer. That park cars at a country club, my four college years, six days a week, twelve hours a day. And uh, I think the girls in the family had it a little bit easier, particularly the, the younger ones. But uh, so Christmas, to get back to the point, Christmas was celebration time, and. Uh, and uh, the strict parents became much less strict because they were obviously much happier. And house was decorated very nicely inside, not to mention the Rudolph out in the front lawn. And Rudolph 
on the front lawn when he was covered with snow and the blinking red light. It was it was really an aesthetic treat. So, um, but um, it so that was a welcome relief to uh, what I would you know call a very otherwise pretty strict um, strict householding. Uh, I think my parents had run out of spankings and things like that by the time uh, Martha Martha was smart. She waited. She waited. but I, I'm not sure it's time yet. So, you know, anyway. you, you've read, I'm sure, in many places that it really took off because of the song, and then the TV show was um, uh, originated in '64, and I still have this visual of us in our rec room on Hamlin with the Montgomery Ward big TV, you know, big big cabinet TV. We were all sitting around the couch, and it was unbelievable watching it for the first time. And when Daddy's name showed up on the credits at the beginning in one of the gift boxes, you know, we all screamed. And um, we just couldn't believe it. And once it was done, we just sat there, and then the phone started ringing off the hook nonstop for my father. And... He was such a kid during that time. He just let himself be himself and and enjoy and absorb every moment of it. He he just loved it. And the um, we had a, a big lifelike paper mache reindeer um, that some some artist got hold of the fact that he did this. And I don't have the person's name, but. He created this lifelike uh, reindeer that was on our front lawn every year. We put it out. We we stored it in the garage under sheets. We had to spray paint it a little every year and fix it up and, um, <laughs> you know, make sure the legs were on because paper mache and snow, you know, aren't the, the best thing. But um, anyway, that was the highlight, truly the highlight of of Christmas was when we took that out and he had a, a rain of colored lights that attached to the house and then of course the, the red light bulb. The joy, one of his biggest joys, the doorbell never stopped ringing with carolers um, and wanting, you know, little kids wanting to take a picture with him sitting on the on the reindeer. And um, those are just the most amazing memories. Amazing memories. Yeah. It was magic. It was fun. It was um, special. It was, I mean, he was a very, um, humble man he he never truly took credit for any of anything it was more like um how lucky and blessed he was that this little character took off and and ended up taking care of his wife and his children and he still takes care of me exactly right Exactly right. The kind of products and stuff that are out there now, and all licensed and everything. With uh, you know, the family has a licensing agent in New York. He had none of that. 
he had none of that. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm sure there was lots of infringement and stuff going on, but he, you know, there wasn't money for him. Um, and then I think it's just a question of values, you know. You, you know from your own friends and associates, there are people who come into the world uh, for whom uh, money matters a lot, and there are people who come in with what I view as a blessing, um, where that's not the thing that's most important, and they get their satisfaction in other ways. And I think he was fortunate to have been one of those people where it wasn't the money that uh, money that mattered. Uh, and it really wasn't until after he died that uh, uh, all the licensing and stuff really expanded. There were a couple of big years, 49, 50, 50, 50, 50, 51, maybe 51, 52, where Rudolph was really, really big in terms of products and stuff. And then it kind of fell off fast. And that's why, uh, literally why he was back at his old, you know, old job again uh, after a seven-year seven year break. Um, so, but they, like I said, that was okay. That was okay. Yeah. yeah. People called him Bob at work. You know, people all called him Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh because I always think of him as Robert, and um, um, it was so funny the way he got the Robert L. May, the L. He was um, in grade school once, and everybody was supposed to introduce themselves, and it got around to him, and he, everybody else had a middle name or a middle initial before him, and he just, um, he made it up. He made up the Lewis, and he made up the L <laughs> right then, yeah, right then on the spot, and um, Never, never was given a middle name. He told me that he grew up in the time the parents like competed how many grades you could have your kids skip to try to advance them and advance them, you know? So they could, you know, get in college. So by the time he, he got into Dartmouth, he was this, you know, he would have been the first to tell you he was this puny, puny guy and um, loved sports, but was way too small to go out for any sports. And um, so the funny part of that, he ended up being um, um, a broadcaster. He did a lot of the sports radio at Dartmouth um, because he loved it because he loved it so much. So he found a way, he found a way to, um, you know, allow his passion to come through with regarding the sports. Plus he was real smarty pants. He was, <laughs> you know, all he did was study cause he didn't, couldn't do the sports. So he was amazingly um, brilliant uh, school. So Robert was working at Montgomery Ward as a copywriter, and his boss asked him to write a little children's story for a Christmas giveaway. It's funny how things turn out sometimes. Preparedness and luck, as Chris says Robert believed, just diving into what's in front of you. But apparently Robert also happened to be the right guy for the job. He did all the roasts, and he was just, he was an amazing writer, plus he was very funny. He did the limericks and the rhyming and all those, you know, type of things, and so... When it came time to do the the, uh, the Christmas giveaway, he was the natural because that's what he always did. So, um, I mean, even, you know, he even told, you know, the sick jokes like your dad does and all that kind of stuff, you know. He just, you know, he, he just had a, a way about him. He just had, he had such a presence about him. Um, you could, 
you know, you could just ask him a question and an hour later he'd still be talking if it was about Rudolph, you know. He just he just got lost in it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he always you know, I never talked to him about it, but he said he always his his passion was to, to write the great American novel, but this was probably turned out better than the great American novel would. <laughs> I just can't imagine a big company today giving up the rights to something like this story, not in today's world, you know? I mean, if there's even a chance for something to make a company money nowadays, they're not going to give that up for free. Uh, I agree with you 100%. And particularly the guy who did it, Sewell Avery, who was the, the head of Montgomery Ward at the time, was known as a real son of a bitch, a mean-ass son of a bitch. Uh, and uh, so, it, I mean, it, it, there's different stories about who went to him and how it happened and so on. But nevertheless, whoever persuaded him persuaded somebody who, whom anyone betting would have said, no way uh, is that going to happen with him. Um, so... Yeah, I agree with you. It's unheard of. Um, the shareholders would probably vote him out of office today if he gave away a company asset like that. You know. Oh no, I agree. I don't. I don't think they knew what they had. I think he. They just figured he just wrote this little jingle, you know, for a giveaway. Even though, you know, two million copies later, plus three million more, they, you know, it, it couldn't. People couldn't get enough of it. And um, yeah, I, I truly, I mean, obviously it was extraordinarily generous, um, but you're right. I don't think it ever would have happened today. And like I say, I don't, I don't think they, they knew what they had, but I'm sure they look back and feel like they did a, a, a lovely thing, truly. Did you know that it was your father's creation when you were young? It was funny, I knew, but my sister was six years younger, so you couldn't explain because if you believe in Santa and you believe in the reindeer and you believe in Rudolph, you couldn't say that dad wrote the story. So what we did is we said, Santa sent Rudolph to our house, to all the other houses with dad's help. And that's how we kind of, um, until Betsy was, was old enough, um, because she still, still did believe. And um, when my brother Chris came home from, from school or work where we was working, we would, you know, of course, do the, the reindeer prints the soot from the fireplace and the carrots and um, dad would write a note to Santa with backward letters. Um, and then one day she got too smart and said, dad, those are, isn't that how you write? You know, so the jig was up. Because <laughs> my sister would say, oh my God, I, did you hear Rudolph on the roof last night? Did you see his light? You know, so it was so amazing to believe. And so you believe, you know. I feel like for most of us, we don't think about Rudolph as a thing that was created by a human. You know, we think it's been around forever. <laughs> well, they do. They think it's older than time. And 
You know, I'll have a friend tell somebody, tell somebody, and then they'll say, oh, no way. That's that's not possible. That's, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. I couldn't make that up, but that's okay, you know? <laughs> I, I agree with you. That was all, almost my dad's take, from as I was suggesting earlier. Um, it, it was any, any more than think of somebody would think of Santa Claus as created by a human, um, you know? Um, it's just... I truly think that if he'd had his, his brothers, um, he just would have let it go into the what they legally call the public domain, where anybody can use it and do what they want with it without any uh, danger of somebody claiming it's mine. Um, you know, um, but I I think you're right, um, and I think kids growing up um, uh, certainly feel that way. Somebody wrote a you know. Somebody wrote a book about somebody who was already there would be the way they would describe the Rudolph's book, you know. When you have an idea, how do you take credit for the idea? I mean, it was like you wake up, or maybe it's literally even in the dream, and you wake up and you recall the dream. How do you take credit for something that literally popped into your head, you know? Especially because he never took any credit for it. Like I said, he was, he truly was a very, very humble, gracious gentleman. So as Chris mentioned, Robert's brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, was the songwriter who wrote the song based on Robert's Rudolph story. He wrote many other famous and secular Christmas songs, such as Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, A Holly Jolly Christmas, and, and many others. Johnny Marks was Jewish, by the way. As a non-practicing half-Jew myself, I just, I love the fact that so many Jews made a bunch of famous Christmas stuff. Anyway, Rudolph took off after the song. Bing Crosby turned it down, as did other artists, until Gene Autry decided to record it. Yeah, that's what truly made it take off, absolutely, the song. And so many other artists recorded it after that, and yeah. So Robert L. May was raised a non-practicing Jew, and he did eventually convert to Catholicism, but not until much later in his life. My mom was Catholic, and late, later, late in their marriage, he, he did convert for her. They were non-practicing Jews. There was something called the Ethical Cultural Society that I knew nothing about that uh, was formed in a, at about the same time um, he was born in 1905. Uh, his parents, his, his father came over from Germany when he turned 20, was, turned 21 and married. Uh, they had, my dad came along, he was the oldest, the first of the kids. But right about that time, this ethical cultural society formed. So they were non-practicing Jews, cultural Jews, but non-practicing. And uh, so they belonged to the ethical culture, which I, cultural society, which I understand is still in existence. Um, yeah. Yeah. We went to church every Sunday to St. Joan of Arc, and if you glanced over at his prayer book, he had the Bridge by Gorin article he was reading behind the prayer book. So was, <laughs> that was another one of his passions, Bridge. So yeah, he, he always had that behind the prayer book, but he was always kind, always went to church every Sunday, and uh, yeah, yeah. But when he married my mom, the Roman Catholic with sisters and brothers who were nuns and priests, uh, he had to sign everything, you know, uh, with the church. To, uh, yeah, literally, they had to go through and uh, you know, the kids would be raised Catholic and uh, all of us thought he wouldn't interfere. And, you know, 
the kids all were told by our mom to pray for was that dad would become a Catholic, you know, before he died. And uh, so we always prayed, prayed that because the deal was that if if you weren't a Catholic, if you weren't baptized, what we were brought up with as Catholics uh, was that if uh, you weren't baptized, you would never ever go to heaven. Period. And for ever, and if you were a good Catholic and you died in the state of grace, whatever it was called, not Indiana Grace. <laughs> anyway, yeah, if you died in the state of Indiana, um, you, you'd go to heaven and you'd be all reunited with everybody, and everybody would look good. You know, they would be young again and happy. And so our dad would never be there. So we're always praying, praying that dad would become a Catholic. So he had our number, of course. Whenever we were bad, he would say. And you expect me to become a Catholic when you behave like that? So the kids, we were just crushed, you know. Oh shit! All our praying, all our hopes, and everything, you know. So in the end, in the end, he became, as you say, he became a Catholic in the end. But he didn't do it. I have, I have two theories as to why he became a Catholic in the end, um, and um, they're, they're equally plausible in my mind. One reason he did it was just to appease the little shits. You know, they're not so little anymore. You know, they kept nagging at me. Okay, I'll become a Catholic. The other thought was, which is equally plausible, is he says, you know, maybe they're right. If they're wrong, nothing, no harm to become a Catholic. But if they're right, and uh, there's something really good up there, like golf courses and bowling alleys, uh, (laughs) you know, I got my bets covered, you know. So, So... uh, yeah, I'd love to have a chat with him. If there really is a heaven, and if I ever get there, those are very equally uh, dubious assumptions. Uh, I'd like to ask him about that. What was prompted your conversion, Pop? You know? <laughs> if you have to be a Catholic yeah. to get in, I'm not. I won't see you. But <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think you have to be a Catholic. I've heard now that you know that you have to be just a good person. They apparently did away with purgatory. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I, the purgatory cut both ways. It was like if you were bad and you weren't eligible for immediate admission to heaven, you'd go to purgatory, and they'd say it would be not just for like a week or 30 days. I mean, you'd be in purgatory for decades, sometimes hundreds of years, but eventually you could get into heaven. But then when they got rid of purgatory, that means they're making a judgment the day you die. This guy's either a good guy or a bad guy. And I knew under those rules I wouldn't get into heaven. So I kind of was sorry to see purgatory uh, erased from the heavenly maps, you know. <laughs> Chris and I got into a long talk about that and other things, including more about art and ideas and, and some of his father's journals from childhood. But I'll save those for another day and uh, maybe a longer version of our talk. After all, Rudolph doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and neither does the spirit of his maker. Believe it or not, my mom died of breast cancer. He died of breast cancer. He got breast cancer not too long. I didn't realize this till recently because I was not living in Illinois at the time. I'd already moved to California, but he got breast cancer. She died in 71, uh, not too many months after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, I never even got to see her. She, I got a phone call saying probably in, in April or something, uh, saying she had breast cancer, and I was, you know, uh, uh, working. I said, okay, well, you know, I'll, you know, I'll come by in June. You know, I get a break from the um, uh, work I was doing then, and that seemed fine to everybody. Well, she died uh, before 
I could even get there. It didn't seem to be a rush. But what I'm getting to is that what I didn't realize so recently is that my dad, during the period she was alive, came down with breast cancer himself. And he died of that uh, in 76, five years after she did. Yeah. Yeah. So. It was really hard after my dad passed. It was, we, we truly, I can say truly, we were like best friends, like truly best friends. And it was really probably for the first, first five years after he passed, it was so hard for me to um, do Christmas and, mm smile and and um all that stuff but but then all the magic and you know he he talked to me and you know it, it slowly 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 it all came back and um it's it's beautiful right now i i love it i still decorate i still collect and it's just it's truly a magical time for me and you know, always give my gifts and Rudolph bags and Rudolph cards, and it's you know just to spread that magic to other people. But it's it's just as good, if not better, except he's not here. You know, but his spirit, his spirit is totally here. Yeah, I truly I miss him every day. I think about him certainly more this time of year than than, than otherwise. Absolutely, absolutely, and. So I like to think that he's uh, somehow still aware of Christmas and Rudolph and all that stuff. And who knows, you know, who knows what goes on up there? Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe he's listening in our on our phone call right now. For all I know. So. I think one of the reasons it's around so long is just the story itself. You know, so many people can identify with it. It's such a beautiful story that. The red-nosed deer with the ugly nose turns out to be the hero and, and loved by everyone, you know? So can, so many children can identify with that and, and even older people, you know, how you overcome your deficiencies and, and shine through. People is a production of Once Upon a Wessler. I'm Calvin Marty, today's host, producer, engineer, editor, and music composer. Feel free to contact me with questions or comments at listen at irregularpeople.show. You can find more information about today's guests, as well as all of our previous episodes on the website, irregularpeople.show. If you'd like to help support the show, the best thing you can do is to share it with family and friends. And subscribing on Apple Podcasts helps us out a lot, too. So from everyone here at Irregular People, which would be me, thank you for surviving 2020. Continue to stay safe and healthy, and I hope you've had or are having a safe holiday season. And here's to a new year. Thanks for listening. Keep listening. Well, I my theory is that it hasn't been. We're in it right now. This is purgatory. Uh, okay, well, that's an optimistic way to look at. It. Some people would say this is hell, but I, I like you. You're an optimist. That's no, yeah, purgatory. I don't think this is hell. I mean, I think uh, it's still uh, some form of inescapable suffering, but it uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it.
There's hope at the end of the tunnel. There's hope, yeah.